First Metrosec is providing this podcast as a general market commentary. Reference to any specific security, product, or entity do not constitute as an offer or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any financial instruments or to participate in any particular trading strategy. The statements, comments, views, or opinions expressed by the hosts are subject to change without notice and First Metrosec is under no obligation to update, amend, change, or correct any of the statements, comments, views, or opinions expressed. The statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed by the guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the view of First Metrosec. First Metrosec disclaims any liability arising from reliance on or reference to any information obtained in this podcast. Podcast Network Asia. You are listening to First Metro Securities Philippine Stock Market Weekly Podcast, where we feature timely and relevant discussions on the Philippine stock market and the economy in the hope of providing you investing and trading guidance. Here's your host, Royce Aguilar, from the Research Department at First Metro Sec. Hi everyone, so this is Roy Aguilar, Equity Research Analyst of First Metro Securities. We have another special guest here for today, but before we introduce our guest, let me just introduce the topic that we have today, okay? So if you recall last May 2021, we talked to Miguel Coneta about the pros and cons of blockchain and crypto and the adoption of they said technology at that time. But, you know, since then, a lot has happened. Just to mention some news, right? So we were seeing athletes taking Bitcoin as salary payment. We're seeing crypto ads in the Super Bowl, NFL. We were seeing NFTs really blow up. And of course, just to connect in a more realistic perspective, we're seeing a lot of banks offering crypto to clients. Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, Bank of New York Mellon announced last year it would hold transfer issue Bitcoin for asset management clients. Last June, El Salvador passed a new law to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender, becoming the first country to do so. Last October, we have a futures, ProShares futures-based Bitcoin ETF. Made its market debut on the New York Stock Exchange. And I just read this earlier this week. Fidelity Investments announced that it will offer Bitcoin as an investment option in its 401k plans by the middle of this year. Guys, 401k retirement account for Americans, right? So it's a big move. Fidelity is the largest 401k plan provider in the U.S., right? So this is the first major 401k provider to offer cryptocurrency as an investment for retirement savers. So... That's just the tip of the iceberg. Of course, there are hundreds, thousands of things in terms of progress for this space. On the other hand, regulation has been the talks as well as given the rapid rise of cryptocurrencies uh, in, in India, they passed new laws to tax the digital assets, which just kicked in the first day of April. In the US, they're also studying some type of regulation as well. So just keep in mind, we are in the equities market, right? At least for Smetri Securities in the equities market. But why are we doing a podcast on this? Just keep in mind, guys, in the equities market, there are mutual funds which offer U.S. equity feeder fund and some of the stocks, just to mention, Meta Platforms, formerly FB, right? FB changed to Meta Platforms since it will move beyond 2D screens and into immersive experience like virtual and augmented reality. Fintech company Block, formerly called Square, so the name Block is this nod to the company's growing interest in blockchain technology and cryptocurrency? Tesla, guys, Tesla, the automotive company, has more than $1 billion of Bitcoin holdings, right? So these companies are part of the U.S. equity fund, feeder fund, which we offer 
in our platform. So assuming the trend continues, a lot more companies can be connected to the blockchain technology and cryptocurrency specifically. As a matter of fact, here in the Philippines, there's this one listed company, Discovery World Corp. So they approved the investment in True Ally Ventures Limited. And True Ally will venture to cryptocurrency and NFTs through blockchain gaming and other various related services contributing to building the open metaverse. So guys, that's a listed company in the Philippines. That being said, we believe learning the basics, understanding what's happening, keeping updated with the latest happenings in space is also important. You must be open to these kinds of developments. That's why we have your special guest. We have your Mr. Luis Benaventura II, right? So he's the country manager for the Philippines for Yield Guild Games. It's a startup bringing metaversal income to emerging economies. He's also a co-founder at BloomX. It's a licensed cryptocurrency exchange. Guys, he's also the one, one of the world's first NFT artists. I believe he's part of this career cards back in 2017. He's the first Filipino NFT artist to have worked auctioned off at Christie's. Back in September 2021, he founded the CryptoPop Art Guild. It's a decentralized organization specializing on creating sustainable income for underprivileged Filipino artists. So he even authored two books on cryptocurrencies, The Little Bitcoin Book back in 2019 and Reinventing the Remittances with Bitcoin back in 2017. So without further ado, let me introduce to you Mr. Luis Benaventura II. Hi, Luis. Hi, Royce. Thanks so much for that intro. That's actually Quite a lot. <laughs> I wonder if any of the listeners will actually remember half of those details. That's a good thing about podcasts. They can rewind it back a bit. Um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. So, Luis, you were early in the crypto space. You started working in the Bitcoin space as early as 2014. I, most of us probably didn't even know what Bitcoin was back then. And I think mm. I saw a video wherein you bought Bitcoin at 220 US dollars, if I'm not mistaken. Please correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah, something like that. It was a long time ago, of course. But yes, wow. the, around that time, Bitcoin was still in the three digit range, USD. So, yeah. Yeah. So, what were you able to see in that technology at that time that made you invest yourself a lot in that space? Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. Well, this was an interesting story for uh, the people who know something about banking and payments in the Philippines. Um, you know, my startup before all of this because was a e-commerce startup. And if you know anything about e-commerce in the Philippines in the early 2010s, so this is like before Lazada, before Shopee, you know, before these massive platforms, actually very hard to do e-commerce in the Philippines because credit card penetration was so low. Right. It still is quite low, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but this was before the heyday of Gcash and Paymaya. And that really changed the landscape for these things. So... I mean, that startup of mine didn't do so well. It actually failed. We had to shut it all down. And, uh, you know, kind of the reason why I started looking into Bitcoin was I was looking for solutions that allowed for online payments to to work that had nothing to do with credit cards because I thought that credit cards, credit history, trying to work with, you know, kind of credit issuers in that way, it's just, it's hard for the average Filipino. And the thing about Bitcoin, uh, at least back then, at least uh, to a certain extent, at least until to now, Bitcoin allows for a lot of permissionless transactions. No? So you're able to get into this and participate even without necessarily going through the average KYC right. uh, policy of your average fintech provider. Right. So that was kind of how I first got into Bitcoin. I was thinking it was an online payment solution. That particular angle on Bitcoin and a lot of other cryptocurrencies hasn't really manifested in the way that I was expecting. Uh, But I haven't changed my mind about its other properties. I think it's still a very interesting phenomenon. It's definitely something worth looking into if you're 
thinking about it in terms of investments and things like that. Yeah. That's good. It's an interesting story because eventually there will be a lot more technology in the future. And it's it's good to hear from someone who's early in the technology and how you were able to to really believe in that technology and look where it is now. The next question is pretty interesting, right? Because just to explain a bit of history, in the ni- around mid-1990s, right, the, the introduction of web browsers, you're, you're, I don't know if you're, if our listeners recall, no? Netscape Navigator ushered the era of what is called Web 1.0. Diba? Yun yung age of static web pages, retrieved from servers. Right now, we're at Web 2.0, uh, where it, it's possible now for user-generated content to be viewed by millions of people around the world virtually in an instant. Right, So basically, these developments enable the dominance of apps like Airbnb, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, to name a few. Now, people are talking about Web 3.0, and that's the next phase. Can you elaborate to us what Web 3.0 is all about and how can blockchain and the other technology related to it can be part of this next phase? Sure. So I'll, I'll say first that you know Web3 is a very emergent concept. So you're going to see a lot of different definitions of right. what falls into Web3 and doesn't fall into Web3. Kind of in the same way that we had much difficulty defining whether or not something was Web2 or not Web2 back in the day. No? Um, now it seems obvious. But yeah, Web3 at least conceptually, is meant to be about protocols rather than corporations. And parang, uh, it's about standards. And um, actually, you know what? It actually really is fundamentally about protocols. And that, that's going to be a little bit harder for listeners to understand. Because like, like, when you think about the web right now, we think about it in terms of brands and corporations. No? So we think about Facebook. We think about YouTube. Where do we go to watch video? Probably Netflix. You know, mm-hmm. probably... These, these massive domains that just have millions and millions of uh, users and content. Um, in Web3, the thinking is that you can develop, instead of developing more further and further monolithic brands and corporations, you can develop protocols instead. And this is kind of like more like uh, arguing about kind of what is the, the language that you should be using to communicate as technologies. That's like, you know, to kind of give you a specific example, Mm -hmm. Bitcoin is an example of a protocol where, you know, there's no single Bitcoin brand. Um, You know, there are lots that are competing to be the Bitcoin brand. Um, You know, like, where do I store my Bitcoin? Well, you can literally type in the word Bitcoin wallet into your Google search and you will get literally hundreds of potential results. And all of them are okay. Some of them are better than others. But there's no, you don't need to ask for permission to make a Bitcoin wallet because Bitcoin's protocol is open source. So you can write software to address it, to to interact with the Bitcoin protocol and the Bitcoin blockchain. And that's fine. Um, You don't need to ask for anyone's permission. There's no copyright to worry about. And a lot of the blockchain that we see right now, the, at least the public ones, are like that. Uh, Ethereum, Solana, Binance Smart Chain, all of these guys are open source protocols that will allow you to create apps on top of them. Some are as simple as just, you know, kind of wallets lang, but others are complex, you know, like maybe the next big lending protocol. I mean, I mean we already have that actually. So it, Ethereum has dozens of these lending protocols where people can, uh, you know, exchange value, uh, you know, as both borrower and and lender. 
and uh, they can interact without ever actually knowing anyone, without knowing each other. And technically, there's no middleman because uh, they're just negotiating using a, a, a software protocol that technically is not owned by anyone. It's 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 all open source. So that's kind of the the angle that we're taking with Web three, where we're trying to see if there's a way to disintermediate or remove those big corporations that used to be in the middle of everything? Or at least, are there user experiences that are possible that will allow us to not rely on these you know, monolithic uh, corporations quite as much? Because at the moment, it does feel like our world is completely ruled by these brands. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so we're going to try. That's, that's the whole idea behind Web3. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for explaining that to us. Because if, if you ask us if, if like... People coming up to me sometimes um, asking what Web3 is all about. And then I have to search my Google, pa, what is it all about? And you, you, you said it correctly, but there, there could be lots of definition for that. But at least you cleared it out to us. What's the intention of uh, Web 3.0? The next question is interesting. Um, it, it kind of became, this kind of became a buzzword right recently. But if you dig in deeply... There are a lot of companies invested already on this one. This is the metaverse. Just to introduce a bit. It's understood as this graphically rich virtual space where people can work, play, shop, socialize. In short, do the things humans like to do together in real life or perhaps more to the point on the internet. So we're seeing the likes of Nike, Ralph Lauren, Starbucks, McDonald's, a lot more companies issuing metaverse-related products and NFTs, which we will talk about later. And NFTs are correlated with their products. Uh, I understand that in the virtual world, the better visual experience and active engagement provide better showcases for their products. Maybe probably that's one purpose. But in general, usually the technology is made to solve big problems. My question is, what problems do the metaverse solve? How will the metaverse reframe human-centered experience? And ano pa kayong mga developments infra needed to really make this more attractive to layman? So feel free to elaborate on the concept of metaverse more if I... Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I should probably mention also that like Web3, the concept of metaverse is very, very emergent also. And I know that there are a whole bunch of different competing metaverses. There's a Facebook one, there's the Microsoft one, and then there's the open source ones, the ones that are actually public open protocols that are things like Decentraland, for example. So oh. these are meant to be community-driven, community-grown, community-developed, and they don't belong to anyone in the same way that the internet doesn't belong to anyone. The internet is just a protocol, right? So we're seeing a whole bunch of competing versions of this stuff, and it's quite hard to tell which is going to really take hold. I will say also that, you know, just uh, conceptually, the metaverse is not really ready yet for mainstream use. Because, you know, the metaverse that we have in our minds, the virtual reality world where we're walking around in 3D space and we're talking to other people that are also walking around in 3D space, like that's not really ready yet. And in fact, I think what's most likely going to happen is we'll just see a very low fidelity version of this for a while, Bob, because, you know... Those types of experiences require a lot of internet bandwidth, meaning you have to have a really good connection. And if anyone, like how many people in the Philippines own a PlayStation 5? Probably not that many, no? Um, Many of them aspire to having a PlayStation 5, but like it's going to be a while before we'll see any number of people 
with access to these things, uh, let alone the correct amount of internet connectivity mm-hmm. to, to pair with that. No? So these are not like cheap technologies. So I think the most likely manifestation of the metaverse, at least for the near term, is we're going to see more and more people rely on the internet for their income, but not necessarily be associated with a particular brand or a particular corporation. I think that's the most likely thing that we'll see from... And, and you know, I have a very expansive definition of the metaverse, and that's why I, I accept that possibility. So even if there's no virtual reality world where everyone is kind of designing their own avatars and looking yeah. cool and stuff like that, even if that's not a thing, I think that the metaverse is already happening, but it's mm-hmm. just happening in a very not sexy kind of way. It's happening with people finding alternative income. And I know that alternative income could come in the form of, for example, decentralized finance. There's the, Within decentralized finance, there's this thing that we call yield farming. So you can kind of uh, participate in these lending protocols, for example, that, you, that will earn you an interest, okay. right? So um, if, you, if you lend your money to someone else, who is trying to borrow money, whatever they're willing to pay in terms of uh, monthly interest. So for example, if it's 1% per month that they're willing to pay for this loan, you'll get that and your principal back at the end of a given period of time. So you know, if you lend it for three months, and that makes, means you get your principal back plus 3%, right? So simple things like that are already happening. Lots and lots of people are using their, their funds in a decentralized way to, to earn interest from them, from, the, from their funds. And it's already been possible for a, a few years now. This is actually my favorite way to make my money work for me yeah. because you know, it's just way better than the interest rates that you would get from, <laughs> say, a time deposit, right? Yeah. Um, so why wouldn't you look at stuff like this? Correct. So, Yun, so that's an example of, um, of something that you know, like you're already able to earn income from... The in, from these decentralized protocols without being beholden to a brand or a corporation. I did not work with a bank in order to get that 3% uh, interest. I did not work with a fintech provider. I just went online with my open source crypto wallet and I interacted with an open source protocol. And that's a, that's a very powerful thing because you, know, yeah. you lose a lot of the friction that's usually mm-hmm. associated yep. with with stuff like this. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I think that, that that's one thing, that's one um, pitch, right? That's one pitch of the whole space is really lessening the friction cost, right? That's why I surprised in, in the intro, there were banks really uh, trying to venture into this one, trying to dip their toes. So actually, in the next question, I'd like to be specific, right? In terms of the cryptocurrencies present, right? So for example, like Bitcoin still the largest cryptocurrency with a market cap of 800 billion. Ethereum, for a second, 360 billion. But I think the, the point here is Ethereum's use case in the past months or years has really gone up, right? Currently, Ethereum operates on a proof-of-work model. The nice thing about it is sometime this year, it plans to shift to a proof-of-stake model where users can only validate transactions according to how many coins they hold. I think this is called... Ethereum 2.0. This will change the infrastructure, ultimately making mining obsolete, right? So I think with these recent developments, the increasing use cases, can Ethereum be this um, 
future go-to cryptocurrency you i think part of the question is well the said cryptocurrency you have the largest market cap the future or do you see other solana avax xtz closing the gap just to you know tip the toes on this one what are, what are your thoughts on that um so Sigal, maybe it will make more sense if we contextualize slightly so bitcoin is generally thought to only be able to do two things and these are the only two things that really matter in the eyes of Bitcoin. No, You need to be able to send money and you need to be able to hold money. Okay. And that's the only two things that Bitcoin really does. Okay. Now, I'm simplifying, of course. Yeah. But because of that, Bitcoin is a relatively simple technology. Those are the only two things that it needs to do. It makes it very easy for it to stabilize its protocol and its platform. Because there are only two ways to use it. And that makes it powerful because it makes it quite simple. No? So when Tesla decides to buy a billion dollars or $2 billion of Bitcoin, mm-hmm. whatever it is that they're currently holding, yeah. um, all they have to do is check whether or not Bitcoin as a protocol is capable of A, transferring itself and B, storing itself. And that's great because that means you don't have to check so many different things. Mm-hmm. Now, how is Ethereum different from that? Ethereum is a complete programmable platform, you can create applications. Entire applications can be created on top of Ethereum. So it's basically like a computer. It's like a, it's like a cloud computer um, that is owned by no one. Technically, it's owned by everyone. So it's yeah. like a public resource computer. What does that mean? Well, it means that it can literally do infinite things. So the two things that Bitcoin can do, Ethereum can do infinite things because it's got its own programming language and you can actually make it do all sorts of interesting things. The decentralized lending protocol that I told you about earlier is an example of an Ethereum-based uh, business. The whole play-to-earn industry that is kind of all the rage right now uh, was made possible because of Ethereum. Yeah. Um, same with, for example, NFTs, uh, which we might talk about early, uh, later also. Mm-hmm. Those are all examples of Ethereum technology. And it was made possible because Ethereum is completely programmable. That also means that um, Ethereum is a heck of a lot more complicated to run, about because it's capable of so many different things. And it's also possibly for that reason that um, there are so many more competitors to, to Ethereum's throne because it feels like the ceiling for you know, all of the juicy opportunities with Ethereum are kind of infinite also. Um, whereas it's much harder to compete against Bitcoin because if the only two things it does are transfer stuff and then store stuff, then you really only need Bitcoin. You don't need another competitor that that can only also do transferring and storing. Bitcoin already does that very, very well. So why would you need to compete there? Right. Whereas with Ethereum, there's so many different angles that you could take so so that's kind of why you've got the question of like, is Solana going to be? Um, a real contender? Is is Avalanche going to be a big contender? I think all of those answers are possible, but I think that it's it's Ethereum's game to lose right now because okay. they've been around the longest and they've got the biggest developer community. Mm-hmm. And we can see how much interest it has uh, garnered over the last six years of its life based on the fact that all of the innovations in blockchain usually started their life in Ethereum. And uh, what happens is the other competing blockchains will make their own versions of it. 
now I don't expect that to be true forever, but yeah. I do think that um, for at least for now, Ethereum has a pretty massive uh, advantage. Right. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying to us uh, the difference and how, I mean, simplifying to us the what Bitcoin does and what Ethereum does. Right. So yeah, we talk now. It's time to talk about NFTs. Right. So these are called non fungible tokens. These are unique, non interchangeable tokens that prove full ownership of items, digital art, music images, and the like. So basically. The question here is, how does NFT differ from cryptocurrencies? What problems does it solve? And I think just just a sub-question. Do you see NFTs maturing to aesthetic or artwork-driven instead of currently community-driven value? So go ahead. Mm. Okay. So let, I guess we can probably start with exactly how what NFTs are supposed to do, no? Um, and I usually start this by saying you can forget about the N and the F in the name NFT because that part usually couldn't just ends up confusing people. I usually say just focus on the token part because at least the word token is relatively familiar to the average person. No? And we know that tokens usually mean that it's symbolic of something. So in this case, what is it symbolic of? Well, it's symbolic of the fact that an NFT is a digital proof of ownership. Okay. Uh, what does that mean? It means that really what you have when you own an NFT, what you actually have in your wallet is a parang proof of sale, parang recibo, okay. right? So when you buy NFT art, what you are actually buying is the proof that you own that piece of art. Okay. Um, so what, is that, what does that allow you to do? When you own that NFT, what does that allow you to do? A, it allows you to sell it to anyone else that you want, or B, it allows you to price it any way you want. And that's that's it. That's the uh, no, that's the only real mechanism that NFT art provides for. And what's kind of amazing about this whole thing is that an entire industry has been born na yun lang yung ginagawa ng NFT art. Yeah. It, it's kind of uh it's it's kind of amazing how that's all it took to make an entire industry possible. Yeah. So what we're witnessing now with this whole, parang these, these thousands of brands getting into NFTs and stuff like that, that was purely because there is now a way to digitally prove that you are the owner of a thing. So that means that we can finally have collectibles that are purely digital. It means that we can finally have artwork that is purely digital. And that's kind of a, never been possible before now, which is, I, I know that that sounds weird, no, but that's that's really all it is. Eh? Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. Now to answer your question about like art and like whether or not it will like NFTs, will it ever become a conduit for aesthetics? No, I think it already is to a certain extent. I think that like my my main well, I guess I would I would call it my side job right now. No, so yeah. it's what I do on the side. I am a an NFT artist. Right. And when I say that, I mean like I make uh, single edition pieces of art that I sell as if they were paintings on canvas uh, with only a single edition. No, there's only one of them in the world. I can prove that there's only one of them in the world. And if you buy it, uh, you are now the sole owner of this NFT or of their, this digital work of mine. In the same way that if you bought my painting, you would be the sole owner of that painting. Right. And that's a 
that's a very valuable technology to have for digital artists because unlike our brothers that can you know sell a painting that's on a canvas like a physical painting we have never been able to prove that you know this digital copy is the only copy that that matters and and nfts allow you to do that nfts allow you to say that well here's the proof of ownership in this digital edition of my work um if you are the only person in the world who has this proof of ownership, then therefore you are the only owner of this digital artwork of mine. Um, and that means that we can now price our work at the same level as our oil on canvas or right. watercolor, um, <laughs> you know, the other painters who kind of work with physical media. Yes. Uh, that's, that's what, I know, that's the problem that it, it, it solved for the artists. Yes. Great. Thank you for, again, simplifying to us. I'm learning a lot and just our first uh, five questions. We have we have last two, right? And this is interesting, right? Because I, I'm shocked that I saw this data. This is an independent survey from Finder, which revealed that the Philippines ranked first for NFT ownership out of 20 countries. And I think it's it, it's based on percentage, right? So with 32% of internet users owning NFTs of Philippines beat out other countries in Southeast Asia, right? Guys, the global average of NFT ownership is around 1.7%. We are at 32% according to this independent survey. And Luis, I've seen in your social media account that the face-to-face meeting with enthusiasts, investors have been prevalent again. How much more potential do you see in the Philippines for NFTs and even the play-to-earn game? You're like what I introduced you, you're the country manager for YGG. So how much more potential do you see? So I should probably explain that particular statistic. The reason why the Philippines is ranking number one in terms of NFT ownership right now is actually because of a single game called Axie Infinity, right? which is a game that is built around NFT technology. Right. Um, in this game, you own digital pets and you use those digital pets to duel against other players' digital pets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a little bit like Pokemon. So all of those characters are NFTs. So that means yeah. that every player... And we think that there's about one and a half million Filipinos that are currently playing NFTs or are playing Axie Infinity. Um, Every player owns at least one, actually three NFTs. That's bare minimum. So that's kind of why the Philippines has has topped that that list. It's purely because of of Axie Infinity. Uh, Now, I'm sure that there are a lot of other games out there. Um, that are also using NFTs. I mean, we we know because we've invested in so many of them. However, I think in the Philippines, it's really Axie Infinity that is accounting for the vast majority of that NFT ownership. Yeah. So how much more potential do you see? I mean, have we reached the peak yet or are we just starting this? Uh, are we barely, just barely reaching surface? Yeah, I think... Um, I think that this industry is going to really evolve over the next couple of years. I think that gaming is just scratching the surface of it. There's so many other uh, angles that this evolution could take. But for now, I think that most of the energy that we're seeing is definitely around games. So how can we use games and combine that with NFTs and digital ownership? How can we create alternative sources of income for uh, for new players, right? And and, uh, allow them to actually you know, quote unquote, play games for a living. That's a, that's a very substantial uh, thrust right now within the industry. 
Yeah. But I think that it's the first of many different angles that this could take. I mean, what are the other ways out there? There are, there are projects where um, it's not playing in order to earn, but yeah. it's running in order to earn. So running or jogging or walking <laughs> fast, you know, and you can, instead of just getting, you know, like little uh, badges or medals in your Google Fit or your Apple Fit app, yeah. these projects actually are figuring, these platforms are actually figuring out a way to actually reward players with money yeah. uh, for, for jogging or running or exercising or anything like that. No? So collectively you call that move to earn. Uh, yeah. That's kind Who's of, that's there? what, yeah. yeah, that's what we're referring to those types of projects uh, as. And there's at least about a dozen of them right now that are all trying to figure out their economics. Yes. So, um, and that's just the, again, this is all tip of the iceberg. There's so many others. Yep. And uh, I'm very excited for this kind of angle, whether or not they'll all work. Um, I think that remains to be seen, but the reason why I'm excited is because this is the first time that I've spotted a an angle in crypt, the cryptocurrency industry that actually addresses people at the base of the pyramid, um, right, meaning right. people that are coming from low income backgrounds. Right. Yes, yes. Uh, it's never been possible before, no, because yeah. uh, you know the only way that you could really use Bitcoin back then, oh, well, even till now, actually, is you have to have some money to begin with. Um, and that's not the case with either play to earn or any of these new other yeah. new other competing ideas. With these ideas, you can start from nothing. Yeah, basta masipag daw eh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you have to you have to definitely show that you're willing to uh, yeah. to work for it. But but yes, uh, at least at least there's a path, no? Because that Correct. path did not really exist back then. So um, so you know, so that makes me very optimistic about this stuff for sure. Yeah, it's it's actually a good thing you, you mentioned that touching the the base of the pyramid. Actually, during the course of the pandemic, a lot of unemployed really went to to play Axie Infinity and managed to survive, right? In terms of uh, economically, in terms of their income, right? So I, I would like to uh, th- this last question is all about the risk, right? There's there's also a risk, of course, in all assets. There's a risk. I just like to mention this example. I think this is also connected with Axie. So. Earlier this month, Sky Mavis Ronin blockchain experienced this hack, right? Uh, reportedly lost players of over 600 million US dollars. I, I believe I saw an article of yours about this amount being inaccurate or something, if not mistaken. So nevertheless, the question here is, what steps are you seeing now or what should have been done in terms of cybersecurity to lessen these types of occurrence, rug pulls in the future? Will regulation be the solution? So what are your thoughts on that one? Yeah. Okay. So I'm not sure if we have the the time to go through the technical details of how the hack actually happened, but I think that it was a lesson for everyone involved that the security should have been a lot tighter for what was essentially the second most popular blockchain for NFTs. So the the first most popular blockchain is Ethereum. The second most popular is Ronin. And the only reason why Ronin is popular is because Axie Infinity is so popular. Right. Um, so yeah, so their security should definitely have been tighter. So, but it wasn't. It wasn't enough, and uh, and they were social engineered in a way that you know uh, caused a lot of user funds to be lost. That being said, uh, at least based on kind of what I know, it looks like the funds have been returned to the owners, um, not because they found the hackers, but because the company covered it. 
Yeah, I think they reached uh, once, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. So it was actually a, a partial cover, actually, but yeah. um, enough that you know most of the people that were affected have been have been made whole. So that's an important step, but it was painful for sure. No, and I think that if you wanted to talk about the risks of any of these uh, types of technologies, it's the fact that they're new. Correct. That's the risk. Yeah. Um, and the thing about every technology is that when it's new, it's not super stable yet. And unfortunately, that is even more obvious when it comes to financial technology, yeah. because uh, financial technology is generally just harder to build. So what happens is that you've got all of these people who are very deeply excited about these new lending protocols, these new yield-bearing instruments and things like that. And um, sometimes when they're not careful enough or cautious enough, you know, they get hacked because they maybe didn't realize that other people could, could abuse or maybe um, find a loophole in their technology. So, so, yeah, so that's, a, that's a constant threat uh, in blockchain or in any of these, these new types of uh, protocols that maybe the security wasn't tight enough and it's possible that uh, you know, people could lose their money. So what's the correct way to approach this? Well, you know, be aware of the fact that it may look really exciting, but you know, there's always a possibility that this stuff isn't really stable yet. Yeah. I don't think that regulation would have helped in this instance because yeah. I think that, uh, so firstly, I don't think regulators understand any of this stuff enough <laughs> to regulate properly. So I think that what would have happened is the regulation would have prevented it from being built in the first place, mm. which I don't think would have been a net positive for humanity. I think that I think that we need to be able to make mistakes in order to grow as a society. But I guess what we need to do then is figure out how to mitigate some of those risks in a way that, you know, like uh, maybe reduce the amount of people that are impacted by it. I don't know how you could do that very easily because the thing about decentralized stuff now is that there's no real limit to the number of people who can participate. Right, right. So that's, uh, so that's the issue that we'll always have to wrestle with. Um, so I guess my advice to any new people who are thinking about participating in any of these protocols is, you know, just do it with both eyes open. I definitely wouldn't sink your life savings into it. I would only participate if I have a good familiarity with what they're actually doing. Um, and maybe I would only participate if the project itself was a little bit more established. No? So right. um, there are some of these projects that are only a few months old, for example, and they're raising tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. Um, and that's a bit much. That's a bit much. Me personally, I'm a little bit more conservative with how I, which, which projects I join or with, right. where I entrust my money. Um, so generally, I, use, I tend to wait until something is maybe two or three years old right. before I jump in. And, you know, it's ridiculous for me to entrust large sums of money to <laughs> two yeah. to three-year-old projects. But let me tell you, that's way better than what some other people are doing, you know, where <laughs> they're another entrusting their funds to something that's only two to three months old. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of the name of the game right now. You have to be willing to take some risk if you want <laughs> to experience this stuff. Uh, if you're not willing to take that risk, it's okay though. It's okay, but you're, you know, um, you will, you run the risk of, you know, being a little left behind with kind of where the state of the art actually is. 
for some people, that's fine. They don't have to be at the bleeding edge all the time. It's okay for them to just like let things happen and then they'll just jump in later on when everything's nice and stable. But I guess you also kind of miss out on some of the early rewards. You know, if you if you get in early with this stuff, kasi, like for example, you know, if you got in at 2014, then you get to see a $220 Bitcoin. Yeah. And right now it's $40,000, right? So it's a very different, it was a, a very, very different price uh, yeah. back then. So ayun, I guess that's the trade-off. Yeah, people back then who were spending $200 on their Bitcoin, um, they didn't know that it would ever become $40,000. Yeah. Like no one did. Um, so did we get lucky? Yeah, sure. To a certain extent, we definitely got lucky. <laughs> but but that's it. That's the trade-off that you have to make. We were making a bet. And sometimes you just do really well, I guess. And sometimes you don't. So, yeah. Thank you for that tip, Luis. But besides that, now, do you have anything else to say to all crypto NFT play to earn investors, enthusiasts out there as well, as those planning to dip their toes into the space for the long term? I usually, so this is an audio podcast, so you wouldn't see it. But usually when I teach classes, I usually wear a hat at the end of the show. And, I, and the hat says, uh, don't trust verify. And what that means is, um, you know, just because you're listening to a guy on Spotify right now telling you about all of the opportunities in cryptocurrency, and he seems to know what he's talking about, (laughs) you should probably still verify everything that I've just said. You should probably not just trust a single source when you get news. This is actually good advice for life in general, but you should verify everything that you hear, especially when it comes to personal funds. No, when the funds that you've worked long and hard for and you are now thinking about where to place it so you can optimize its yield-bearing capacities. Um, You should definitely verify. You should do your homework, do your research. It's a big world out there. It's very exciting, but it's also very dangerous. So don't ever forget that all of this stuff is available to you. All of the information that you need is already available out there. You just need to know where to look. And in order to know where to look, you just have to put in the time. There's no shortcuts to this stuff. You have to spend the time necessary to learn as much as you can. And then only then do you, you know, start thinking about where to put your personal funds. At least wow. that's my advice. Wow. Timely advice, not, well, not only for crypto, but for all kinds of investments. Thank you, Luis, for answering all our questions, for simplifying to us what all of these are all about. So thank you, uh, Luis. Uh, again, this has been Royce Aguilar. First Metro Securities, it's as always with First Metro Securities, it's hashtag your future first. So thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to First Metro Securities Philippine Stock Market Weekly Podcast. Don't forget to follow us to get first dibs on our new episodes. For more up-to-date market news and info, exclusive content, and the opportunity to connect with your fellow Filipino investors and traders, join facebook.com slash groups slash firstmetrosec and be part of the First Metrosec family. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia, the hosts of the program, or other programs of the network. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.